the book of Ezekiel. Here we go. The title. Title for Ezekiel. Where, where does it come from? Well, it's fairly self-explanatory. It comes from 1-3. It says, The word of the Lord came directly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kibar Canal, and the Lord's hand was on him there. Okay? That's where it comes from. The word Ezekiel means God strengthens. So the, the man and the name of the book, just like Jeremiah, just like Isaiah, um, all pretty much uh, the same as far as where we get the, the title of the book from. Quick facts, Ezekiel ranks second in actual word count among the prophetic books, uh, 39,407 words if you care, um, as compared to Jeremiah's, and he ranks third in size in the entire Bible. So uh, we are finishing up these, uh, these big boys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and <coughs> he's one of them. Ezekiel was thought to be the author until modern critical scholarship. We still hold that he is the author. That's kind of been a, a repeating refrain, you know, if you're kind of paying attention to that, that uh, the traditional uh, view is usually the name or related to the name of the book. You know, that's where it comes from. Until a critical enlightened movement, if you will, arose. S.R. Driver of Oxford, who usually champions the liberal critical cause, wrote, no critical question arises in connection with the authorship of the book, the whole from beginning to end bearing unmistakably the stamp of a single mind. So even this scholar, and he's written a lot of stuff, um, if you look back at um, older material, he is uh, one of the top scholars in, in the writings. Uh, he argues that there is a single author to the book. So the date of the book... <coughs> It says on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, Ezekiel 1-2. So his first dated message was somewhere around 593 B.C. So that's the time period that we're looking at. Now, just to, to get our bearings straight, um, historically and, and culturally, so we've looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah, and... Now we're hitting Ezekiel, okay? So, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Jerusalem, right? Over here, Euphrates and Tigris River, okay? Babylon, Assyria, uh, Syria, Syria, Egypt's over here. The fifth day of the month, the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. So, he's in exile, right? 586 BC, right? This will come up in a minute. I have a chart actually. But 586 B.C. for the south, 722 B.C. for the north. All right, that's when they're exiled. Those are the dates you got to keep in your head. In the 27th year of the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me in Ezekiel 29. That's his last dated message, around 571 B.C. Okay? Now... Ezekiel is probably the most accurately dated book in the Old Testament. Fourteen different chronological notices are given in the book. Um, if we didn't have chronological notices, we wouldn't be able to really date the book. So the way that works is you, you have a notation about a king's reign, and then we try to pair that with the regular world history to figure out when these events took place. And in Ezekiel's case, since he gives us 14 of these chronological pinpoints, we're able to track him down pretty well and pinpoint what these are. 
timeline for our book. This is Ezekiel's call to be a prophet. He sees a vision in the temple in 592 or so. The elders visit Ezekiel in Babylon in 591. Ezekiel hears about the fall of Jerusalem in 585. He sees a vision of the new temple around 573, and he prophesies Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy Egypt in 571. And a few years later, and um, this all happens. Why does, uh, why does Egypt matter? Because the Syria or Babylon is controlling everything. Who's your last pope king when they're speaking? Jesus over here in the back. Just saying. So don't be trusting Egypt. They're not going to help you out. There's a 22-year period of prophecies in Ezekiel. He's ministering to the exiles in Babylon primarily during the first and second deportations. Okay? So we'll, we'll have a few more words to say about that when I get to my background chart, okay? <clears throat> the man, Ezekiel, he was a priest of the line of Zadok. He was a prophet, okay, because he was called by God to be. And he's called to be a watchman, all right? A watchman is someone who looks out, who warns people of impending dangers, okay? Uh, you see a thief coming, you warn, hey, thief's coming, right? See the army coming, you warn. He is married, unlike who? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Okay. His father was boozy, but no further details of his background are given. He's a younger contemporary of Jeremiah. I'll show you that on a chart in a few moments. He was in a colony of exiled Jews in a place called Tel Aviv by the river Kibar. He's married, but his wife dies the same day that the siege of Jerusalem begins, chapter 24. That is a heavy... He was carried into captivity in the second phase of the Babylonian captivity in 598-97 with King Jehoiachin um, during that time period. And again, um, those dates, uh, I'll have a chart up in just a few minutes so that we can really highlight those and you can understand the dates you need to know. There's not a lot of dates that I think you really have to know, but there are some dates that are really important for you to know so that you can put everything else in its proper place. Right? And I think really for the Old Testament, it's really about a half a dozen of those dates. That if, if you just know a half a dozen, oh, thanks, you're awesome. If you know a half a dozen dates, then uh, you're, you're pretty good to go um, for putting everything else where, where it belongs. Let's see. At the time of his call, he was about 30 years old. So he was probably about 25 when he was captured. That didn't work. <laughs> Technology, right? You know what that means, right? Yeah. All right. So the genre, I'm going to try it again in just a second here. 
the genre in Ezekiel is all over the place. All right, which it's a long book, so that's okay, right? You have lots of different aspects in Ezekiel. This is one of the things that makes it difficult to figure out what's going on as far as interpretation goes. So you've got prose and narrative, okay? That should say now it came about. Not, not, okay? Now, all right? Now it came about. Just like the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, they all begin pretty much the same way, all right, in the Hebrew. All right? Your translations may or may not do it the same way, but in the Hebrew, they start the same way. Um, poetry, there's poetry in it. There's apocalyptic visions. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, 37 and 40. There's dream visions, chapters 1 to 3 and 8 to 11. There's drama, there's proverbs and parables, there's allegories, riddles, and funeral dirges. Okay? So there's all these different um, ways of telling something, or all these different uh, genres to get your message across. Now, why does this matter and why is it confusing? Be because you need to be aware of what you're reading when you're interpreting it or teaching it or, or preaching it so that you don't come away with the, the wrong idea. Like when someone's writing poetry, it's not quite the same as a, a narrative story or a historical account of something. And so you gotta be aware of that. Yeah, we are still not working here. Apocalyptic genre. What is that? What is apocalyptic genre? Okay. This comes uh, primarily from um, what's his name? Ralph Alexander, Dr. Ralph Alexander, who has been uh, studying and teaching this stuff for, I don't know, 40 plus years. I think he did his dissertation in the 1974, I think on apocalyptic literature. So that tells you um, how long he's been doing this, right? Uh, he, he did a series recently at uh, the Master's Seminary, at uh, where John MacArthur is. He did a, a series on the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I don't know how many it is. It's on YouTube. Uh, I, I didn't have the time to watch the 30 some odd hours of one that it is. <laughs> but that's who this guy is. So I'm just telling you that so you can have a little bit of a background where this is coming from. This is what he did his dissertation on. And he's been working in the book of Daniel, you know, ever since. So for like 40 some odd plus years. It's a literary genre, okay? Not primarily theological. That's where that's why literary is underlined. Okay? It's a type of, of writing, all right? It's not a, a way of theological speak. And that has to do with the manner in which information is told. So apocalyptic literature is symbolic, first off. That's why you got dreams and visions. Symbolic. It's not trying to be confusing. So th that's something to, to clue us in right away. So how come there's so much confusion on Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, all three books which have apocalyptic stuff in them? Well, because we got a big gap in our shared pool of knowledge. Like, we don't understand what's going on. But guess who kind of did understand what was going on? The people that it was originally written to. God's not trying to be confusing. Um, understood to the extent intended by the original audience, okay, Number two is visionary, okay? A vision recorded as seen by the author and explained by divine interpreter whose theological content is primarily eschatological. So what you have in Ezekiel is you have these visions and dreams and then they're explained, all right? And what um, Dr. Ralph Alexander would 
say is, listen, he says, don't try to go beyond what the divine interpreter tells you the symbols and visions mean. Because that's where we start making up all this fanciful stuff, and we don't really know. Like, he says, it's okay to say, I don't know. The truth is, when I was younger, I wanted, I wanted to know what everything meant, you know? Now I've realized, like, I'm not going to know what everything means, right? Because God's ways are higher than mine, and some things he's hidden from us. And some of this stuff, I, I don't know what it means. And if you want to know exactly how the end is going to unravel itself, well, I don't know exactly how it's going to unravel itself, you know? I can tell you some big picture things that I think are pretty clear in Scripture, and then we can talk about some other possible ways that I think it might unfold, um, but exactly how, like, we don't have that, okay, except for the, the big things. So symbolic, it's visionary, it's prophetic, it comes from God, okay? In uh, Jeremiah's case, in Ezekiel's case, what, what does God do? God puts his word right in them, you know? It's composed during oppressive conditions. Now, point number four is something that Dr. Alexander says that every type of apocalyptic literature that he looked at and surveyed always occurred during oppressive conditions. So, that's something to keep in mind when we're looking at this. Why would Ezekiel have apocalyptic literature in there? Well, he is in exile. The people are in exile. Why would Daniel? Well, again, where's Daniel? Daniel's in exile. Why would Revelation? Where is John? On the island of Patmos in exile, right? So all of these are persecuted, oppressive situations. Now, a quick side note on that. The, the Jews in, um, in Babylon during this exile were not treated like Egyptian slaves were treated during Moses' time. All right? They had, from what it, it seems to be, a bit of freedom. I mean, we just mentioned you got people visiting them. You had people that were engaged in business practices, um, which is why when Cyrus, Persia, uh, comes to power and he says, you guys can go home now, they don't all go home. Like some, they've been living there for 70 years, and they got prosperous businesses, some of them. They're like, nah, we don't need to go back to Jerusalem, we're good right here. So keep that in mind also. That being said, I'm not saying that everything was all peachy for all of them either. I'm just saying it wasn't total negative all the time. Alright, so dream visions. What are these? God always uses the literature of the day to reveal himself. Okay, He's not trying to be confusing. Again, this is coming from Dr. Alexander. Uh, Mesopotamian dream visions that frequently appear in the ancient Near East literature during the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. So, these dream visions are not something that's just unique to Ezekiel or the Bible. They occur in the ancient Near East. And in fact, there's a whole bunch of accounts of them if you were to go research this out. And here are the primary elements that you see in a dream vision. There's a description of the setting. That's the time, the recipient, the place of the recipient, the general setting, etc. There's a record of the vision. A person saw, the person that saw the vision describes what they saw. All right, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? And then there's the interpretation. The divine interpreter interprets the vision and says what it all means. And so those are the three aspects that take place in the dream visions. And guess what? Those aspects take place in Ezekiel also. All those parts are there in Ezekiel. Alright. Um, apocalyptic literature. These are some of the um, aspects that it includes. I'm going to try to uh, 
do another route here for the remote. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah has some, and Revelation has some. Symbolic action, all right? So in the book of Ezekiel, you're going to see a lot of symbolism, all right? So he does stuff uh, to demonstrate whatever God's message is, and he does it via uh, symbolic action. And so you see this in um, Ezekiel. There's a bunch of uh, verses there, but it's not just Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. He goes around naked and barefoot. Micah goes around naked and barefoot. Hosea's marriage to the, um, the prostitute. All of these are symbolic actions. God's very graphic. These are some of the things that really, um, if you think about it, cause you to stop and really ponder God, especially Hosea. Like, he tells him to go marry a prostitute. Like, God's people aren't supposed to be shacking up with prostitutes, right? But then he tells Hosea, go marry one. And so, um, God, God does do very strange things in our minds when he wants to get our attention sometimes. And if you look throughout scripture, you, you see that that's the case. Strange things to get people's attentions. So, the style of the book is autobiographical. Almost all of his oracles, okay, except for some in chapters 1 and 24, appear in the first person, giving the impression that they are memoirs of a true prophet of Yahweh. Ezekiel didn't share his personal struggles or reactions with the reader, as often as Jeremiah did. He still did. I mean, there's, there's passages, okay? So he still did. Just It wasn't as uh, forthcoming about his personal life as Jeremiah was. There's only two voices in Ezekiel's book, O'Connor says. He says um, the prophet's voice and God's voice. Those who consult and oppose Yahweh and Ezekiel never speak. The words of the latter are doubly framed. Ezekiel quotes Yahweh quoting them in refutation. So, uh, Constable in his notes on this, quoting O'Connor um, on that. Two other features mark the oracles in Ezekiel. One is the having of oracles in which the writer first propounded a theme, and then he pursued a different theme, only to end up with a coda that links elements from both parts. In other words, you go on ABA. All right? So, you're opening up with one theme, then we go and talk about this, and then we come back to this one. All right? That's what he's saying there. The second characteristic is the use of an earlier text or tradition, uh, the interpretation of it in the light of current circumstances, and the application of it to new situations. So he's using old stuff to say new stuff. Right? Does that make sense? Old stuff to say new stuff. All right? <clears throat> Another stylistic characteristic is the formulaic expression Ezekiel used, some of which are unique to him and others shared with other prophets. So... Um, for instance, he usually refers to Yahweh as Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, 217 times. That's what he does. This title emphasizes Yahweh's authority as his people's divine master. So, the Lord Yahweh. The name by which Yahweh addressed the prophet 93 times is consistently Ben-Hadam, <coughs> son of man. 
He never used Ezekiel's personal name. The title Ben-Adam appears only in Ezekiel and in Daniel 8.17, which Ezekiel 2.1 may have influenced. The Son of Man title stresses the prophet's humanity and the distance between God and the human. Jesus likewise used the term almost 90 times in the Gospels. So you got 90 plus in Ezekiel, and then you got 90 give or take with Jesus in the Gospels. Ezekiel's favorite title for the Israelites in the former northern kingdom in Jerusalem or in exile is the house or family of Israel. Beit means house, Beit Israel, the house of Israel. 83 times or 57% of its 146 uses in the Old Testament. So more than half of all the Old Testament usages is in Ezekiel. And it expresses the solidarity of the Israelites. So despite the fact in my previous class this morning, where we're talking about the divided kingdom and the divided between the north and the south, there's an aspect here where Ezekiel is dealing with them as one people, because they were God's people, which is what the end of Ezekiel promises that they will once again be. Ezekiel almost always carefully distinguished whether he or Yahweh was speaking, in contrast to some other prophets who sometimes leave the reader with a question about who's speaking. Other formula of expression common in the book are the word the Lord came to me saying, or thus has the Lord Yahweh said, and the declaration of the Lord Yahweh, or set your face toward, and that means to face the person or person's address so they get the full impact of what is said. The hand of the Lord came upon me, reflects God's control of his prophet, as does the spirit of Yahweh fell upon me. And I am Yahweh, and they will know that I am Yahweh are also distinguished theological formulas. So in all the repetition in Ezekiel, do you recall reading those phrases a lot, mm-hmm. maybe? So I guess you should, right? Because um, he's used some phrases, what, son of man? You should have read that about 90-some times, right? <laughs> um, let's look at a few themes. We're just going to highlight these. All right? They should resonate with you after having read the book. The character of God as seen in his throne. Okay, That's going to be uh, the first chapter of the book, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But as a theme, it's one of the themes that's in the, the book. Also, the idea, the glorious God of Israel occurs 11 times in the first 11 chapters. Okay, so in the beginning of the book, this phrase related to, um, whoops, I think I, sorry. The glorious God of Israel, 11 times. So this is related to God's character and his gloriousness, or his glory, all right? You're also going to see the ideas of righteous, holy, just, and sovereign. These aren't new. You've seen them like in every prophet book, right? So these are, these are the ideas. The prophets are coming in. They're God's cops. They're covenant enforcers. I mean, they're like, listen, you guys, you understand who this, who this is that you're talking about here. We're talking about the creator, the Yahweh, the sovereign one, you know, the holy one. So, wake up, get your act together. The good shepherd's reign is another idea that we see in here. Um, I think I'm going to pick up on this a little bit later. I think I have it listed. Let me check. Yeah, I I think I do. So, I just want to comment on it right now. That you might know that I am Yahweh is a phrase there. 54 times plus 18 more expansions of the phrase. Okay, And I acted for the sake of my name is also used in this context. 
Let me make a comment on that you may know that I am Yahweh. Uh, that is a repeated refrain in the book of Exodus when God is freeing the people and it's the plagues are, are being poured out from the skies and God continuously says, so that you will know that I am Yahweh. This is a phrase that is all through the Old Testament. And really, uh, I don't want to overstep any bounds, but you might be able to say that that's the point. I have several different uh, biblical theology books, or Old Testament biblical theology books. Biblical theology is where you trace themes from Genesis forward. No? If it's on the whole Bible, it's from Genesis to Revelation. If it's the Testament, you trace it from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament. Um, whether you go Malachi with the English order or you go Chronicles with the Hebrew order. And you see how God develops. And so there's different ideas. There's uh, the idea that the covenant, God's covenant, is the, the main uh, focus. Um, or salvation history is the main theme, you know, running through everything. But one of the things, if you think about it, that you might know that I am Yahweh is quite frequent. And everything God does is kind of pointing to the idea that you would know that he's Yahweh. And that know is an experiential. It's the Hebrew word yada. Um, it's that you would not just know in your head. It's that you would know experientially. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Because when did Moses know experientially that God was real? That's, yeah, right? I mean, I don't want to say he didn't know he was real before he was, you know, 80 years old at the burning bush. But, you know, he experienced God at the burning bush, right? Um, I mean, if he was older as a kid, you know, when he was put in the basket, that might have been it, right? You know, when he saved out of the river. Um, experiencing God, as I was driving over here this morning, you know, I was kind of thinking about this idea of experiencing God. Like, when did you experience God? When did you come to know that, that God is real? Like, we don't enter God's family until we've experienced God, right? At some point, God reveals himself to you. Okay, whether it's through the words of a preacher, or which hopefully with the words of scripture out of his mouth, right? Or whether it's you reading your Bible or whatever, God reveals himself. We don't know God, okay, unless he reveals himself. Which is why, again, people without the revelation of God, what do they do? They cast off restraint and they kill them up, right? So, I'm saying all that just to say, um, maybe I'll write a book one day. That I think that is a hugely important phrase. And I find it interesting that it's mentioned 54 plus 18 times in a book that is primarily written to God's own people. Of course, they're in exile because they don't understand who he is, right? Why are they in exile? Because they don't get the fact that he is God, despite the fact that how many things have they experienced um, that he has tried to demonstrate to them, I am God. How, how much do you have to demonstrate to somebody that they can trust you? Or that you love them, you know. This is something right now. Honestly, this is a, a real life thing with us and our our son. So we adopted. So uh, trust doesn't come with that. You know, it's not a package deal like you adopt and you, um, and your kid trusts you. No, we, we, like we didn't have him when he was a baby. Uh, we got him at nine years old. So he doesn't have a trust factor with us. In fact, he he has the exact opposite because for the majority of his life, he's been moved around to different places and nobody's ever kept him. So there is no trust factor, and it will probably take years to actually build a real trust factor. So how do you how do you demonstrate that? Like how do you convince him that you no, know, he really went out to the car one day and actually drive off and, and 
need you, you know, or leave you somewhere and not come get you. Um, I mean, human is just fine, and, and God working in his heart. And I say that just to say, how much does God have to do to demonstrate to his people, or to you and me, that he really is the good God he claims to be, and that we are really not that sinner? And I say that, and it's easy to say it in class room, but it's not so easy to say that if you're Hezekiah, and you have 185,000 Assyrian Nazis outside your door ready to kill you. But it's in that instance that God is saying the same exact thing. Trust me. You don't need an alliance with Egypt. You don't need an alliance with Assyria and Babylon. You just need to ally yourself with me and trust me. And I always use the same illustration. It's probably because when I was growing up, this was a video game, I guess. But not that we owned it, but <laughs> Mario Brothers, you know? You're, you're the invincible little Mario, you know? You just bounce around because nothing's going to hurt you. And that's how it is with God, right? When he's got your back. Anyways, remembrance of the covenant is related to this also. He says in Ezekiel 16, 60, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Covenant is a big deal in Ezekiel. There's a new covenant in Ezekiel, which reminds us of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 as well. The covenant is a big deal. Um, established is probably best understood as a ratification of what already existed. If you do any studying on the word covenant, and the use of covenant in the Bible, you'll see that there's um, a discussion or a debate about the word used. There's, there's several different Hebrew phrases that are used, okay, for covenant, and it can mean like a brand new covenant, like we got a new deal, or it can mean, and the argument is that probably here what it means is it's referring to a covenant that's already established before. Well, with with Abraham, right? So it goes all the way back with that. And God's saying, I'm remembering, I'm acting on, and I'm adding to. I'm expanding. And so I think that's what we see in the Bible is we see the covenant that God makes with his people. It expands over time. Was, was it in this class last week or was it in my backgrounds class that I talked about um, from Abraham all the way through? I think it was my backgrounds class of how the covenant goes narrows down to one uh, one nation, one tribe, one family. Was that the backgrounds class? In backgrounds? Yeah. Alright, and it continues to narrow down until you, until you got not just one tribe, you got one family, you know, then you got one woman, you know, then you got the virgin virgin birth, so that's got to be one woman, right, in Isaiah 7, 14, and then you got um, born in Bethlehem, so now it's one place, and so you, it just all narrows, narrows, narrows down as we talk about, you know, who the Messiah is going to be. Unfortunately, my phone locks now, so. Oh. The Hebrew text of Ezekiel has suffered more than most Old Testament books in the process of transmission. This is due to the large number of technical expressions, including dates and measurements, that occur only once in the Hebrew Bible. So here's a word I want you to know. All right? You don't have to, like, spell it for me. I just want you to recognize the word and know what it means. Hapax legomena. Everybody say it three times fast? No, you don't have to. All right? What does it mean? Um, 
They're unknown words. Because they occur one time. And how you find out what a word means? Context. But if it only occurs one time, then it's like your best guess. So there's a lot of these in Ezekiel. I was looking at a chart um, when I was prepping for this, and I think the chart was four or five pages long. Of It was like one verse, you know, per line type of thing. It was the same. So that many different words were listed as these apoxlegomena. So <coughs> consequently, there's many interpretive difficulties in the book of Ezekiel. All right. So here's some interpreting guidelines. All right. Seek to understand the major ideas presented through the vision and don't dwell on the minutia. All right. I don't remember if I took this directly from Ralph Alexander or not, but he would agree with this. So look at the big picture and don't try to get every single detail. So why do the, the flying things have hands under their wings? I don't really know. I don't know if anyone knows. The guideline is underscored in the second principle, which is follow the divine interpretations normally accompanying the vision. These divine interpretations concentrate on the overall concept rather than the details. In other words, the big picture. Get the main point. All right. Be keenly aware of parallel passages in the harmony of Scripture, since the prophets normally sought to apply past revelations of God to their contemporary situations. The general prophetic message among the prophets is essentially the same. All right. And fourthly, use the same approach with the symbols and imagery of visionary literature as used with figurative. So symbols and images are properly understood as figures and are not to be taken um, literally because they're what? They're figurative, right? So, all right, continuing on. All right, now we're going to jump to, I think, my chart about, okay, so the kings of Judah. So when I mentioned Jehoiachin, all right, who is Jehoiachin? All right, when he gets exiled. Okay, well, remember, Josiah, Josiah was one of those boy kings, right? And so he was, he was pretty good, but he didn't do everything good. These were his sons. So Jehoiakim was on the throne, and then Jehoiachin was on the throne. Well, Jehoiachin is taken off into exile, okay? The other kings were Madaniah, whose name was changed to Zedekiah, and Jehoahaz. So these are the, the ones that we referred to earlier. The context and the contemporaries. <clears throat> okay, when we look at the, the book of Ezekiel, one of the things that we want to pay attention to is what's going on contextually. All right? So as you can see in this chart, i got three prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, all listed together up there. And I'm going to throw Isaiah into the mix in a minute as well. So... Ezekiel begins ministering in about 593 B.C. when he's 30 years old. So he would have been born about 623, okay? Hence the, the B for born, okay? <clears throat> and he would have grown up in Judah during King Josiah's reforms. So he's growing up while the young king is trying to get the people back on track. The date of Jeremiah's birth was about 643, so 20 years before Ezekiel's. So Jeremiah is about 20 years older than Ezekiel. Jeremiah began ministering in Judah around 627, so Ezekiel would have been familiar with him and his preaching. All right, so think through that as well. All right. So 
there's some indications in the book that he was um, familiar with them, though Ezekiel never referred to them. Both of them seem to be taking a lone stand for the truth, one in Jerusalem and the other in Babylon. Now, one of the cool things about that is, as this is going on here, okay, so as Jeremiah is left to preach here, all right, when did the northern kingdom fall to Assyria? 722, right? So the northern kingdom has been gone. Then they have also been deported out. Okay, there's three deportations. Um, are they on here? No, they're on another chart. So it'll come up in a minute. So 605, 597, and then 5, sorry, 586, 47. Okay, you see both regularly, so just be familiar with them. So this is 1, 2, and 3. Deportations to Babylon. Captivity in 605, okay? So you got the three of these. Let's see. See up here on, on the screen for us? So birth somewhere around 620 for Daniel. 605, he goes into captivity. Alright? So Daniel was on this first run. Okay? So you got one, two, three. So Daniel goes here. Ezekiel goes here. And then Jerusalem goes here. Alright? Jeremiah eventually, actually, is carried by the people against his wishes to Egypt. So then you have them over there. So now you got these prophets all over the place. Alright? So they're not in the homeland, if you will. You got God's word being preached all over the place. So Daniel went into captivity in 605. He was a teenager. So his year was probably, like I said, around 620. Ezekiel then may have been only a few years older than Daniel. So Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, as far as ages go. Daniel's ministry was for about 70 years until 536. Much longer than what Ezekiel <coughs> The dotted lines are their early life. So Jeremiah's got a long ministry. Okay, Ezekiel's fairly short comparatively. And then Daniel, very long. Daniel's ministry continues only through the Babylonian time period, but when Persia takes over, 
Okay. Then. Yeah. So, any questions on that? That's the fall of Jerusalem. Right. So the city's burned down, temple's burned. Yeah, and then I think what? What does that mean? Oh, so then, let's talk about all of these. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So this is just to date you So I usually say 586, but quite a few of the books will say 587. So 587, 586, all right? So I will, I will not put both of those like as a choice on a test or something. It'll be one or the other. So th they mean the same. All right? So just remember, like, when we're dealing with dates that are, that are this far back and we're not, um, a one-year difference doesn't matter. I mean, you know, same. So Ezekiel went um, under Nebuchadnezzar's uh, second quotation. So all, all of these, this is related to um, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So King Neb, okay, of Babylon. Because we're after the time period of Assyria, which I'll, I'll bring that back up on another slide here, then, all right? Um, so Ezekiel is in the midst of the Jewish exiles who had uh, settled uh, along the Kibar River, according to chapter 3, verse 15. One of his um, favorite things, or I don't know if it's his favorite things, but one of the things he does, as we mentioned, is a lot of these sign symbols, okay? So, all right. That's context and contemporaries. So let's continue talking for a minute about the contemporaries. <coughs> um, sorry for the white blotch up there. But Jeremiah began his ministry in the reign of Josiah. Ezekiel with the second deportation, as we mentioned, and Daniel um, with the first deportation. Jeremiah is called the, the weeping, weeping prophet, okay? Ezekiel is the prophet of hope, and Daniel is the prophet of nations. This chart is from um, John Stevenson. So <coughs> both Jeremiah and Ezekiel focus on the land a lot, whereas Daniel is on the nations. All right. So after spring break, when we look at Daniel, that's kind of crazy how that worked out. The shortest prophet book so far, 12 chapters, and you've got like two weeks to read it, right? <laughs> like where was that when we had uh, Jeremiah? I think you did have that for Isaiah, but... Um, Jeremiah prophesied to the Jews of Jerusalem, Ezekiel to the Jews by Kibar, and Daniel to the Chaldeans in Babylon. So, one of the things that you should be starting to see in the prophet books, all right, and it didn't originate there, it actually originated um, way back in Genesis. It shows up in the Abrahamic promise, God's concern for the nations. Through Abraham, he said, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And it also is, even prior to Abraham, his concern for what we would call the Gentiles. So you see that Daniel is doing a ministry in the midst of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and prophesying to them. Where does God send Jonah? To the Assyrians. When? Well, during the time period when the northern kingdom was still around. Send them over to the Assyrians. Um, Jeremiah writes from Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Daniel are both writing from Mesopotamia over here. Uh, Ezekiel mentions Daniel three times, and Daniel mentions Jeremiah. And Jeremiah ends with the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel ends with a vision of a future temple. And Daniel ends with a promise of a future resurrection. So you can see how these books, not only do they overlap historically, as in their contemporaries, but also...
also, they supplement each other contextually and theologically, fleshing out the picture of what God is doing. Um, so, keep all of that in mind as well. <clears throat> Alright, so let's bring Isaiah back into the mix. Okay? So, Northern King ends. What's at the end of our yellow bar right here? What year? 722, right? Right there, at the end of the yellow bar. So that's the 722. That's when Israel uh, goes kaput, right? Now, uh, because of uh, the way we teach this course, I mentioned this probably in the first week. So in your textbook, uh, House Advocate for Teaching Through as the, the Hebrew Bible is arranged, right? Um, we're doing it as the English Bible is arranged. So what that means is that we do a lot of backtracking, okay? Uh, OT Survey 1 lays the uh, foundation with a historical story. So it looks kind of like this. Okay, so you go from Genesis, basically, through um, Kings. All right? If you want to know what's the Old Testament storyline, that's it right there. And then we come along in OT Survey 2, and we start plugging, really. Plugging and playing, right? So we start putting all the wisdom literature. It occurs during here. And then the prophetic literature occurs here. So we're just plugging back into the main storyline. You all with me? You have the exact same thing with the New Testament. Okay? In the New Testament, you have the Gospels and Acts. Okay? And then I guess you could add Revelation. Everything else, though, is a plug and a play. Right? It fits basically into the storyline of Acts. All the epistles, all of that, they all fit into Acts. So you, you have the same... Um, you have the same issue or challenge or whatever. You have to decide how you're going to teach it with the New Testament also. Usually people teach by the book, right? Um, but you got to have your context to understand that. So I say all that to say, um, if you haven't had OT Survey 1, you're missing some of that historical background. You don't have the storyline. And that's why we keep doing a rewind. We keep going backwards because we haven't done Amos and Hosea and, and Micah yet, but they occur even before Isaiah. Right, because the Amos is way back here. So, the ministry of Isaiah, okay, and the the book of Isaiah that we've already studied was back here with Jotham,as Hezekiah, Manasseh, etc. And he was up here, and he was this voice trying to tell them, "Stop putting your trust elsewhere. Put it in God." That's the message, by the way, of all the prophets, right? Stop putting your trust somewhere else. Put it in God. Right? And promote justice. And they don't listen to him. So in 722, you have deportations out to Assyria. Alright? <clears throat> and then comes Jeremiah. He comes on the scene. The north is now gone. Well, what do we do about the south? So, He's continuing the ministry. God's putting his word in his mouth to tell these guys, hey, learn a lesson from your sister up north, or you're going to go the same way. Do they learn? No. So they end up going the same way, this time by uh, Babylon instead of by um, Assyria. Okay? So this slide I had up last week for Jeremiah. So this is just a review, and I'm trying to put these all together so you see how these pieces 
fit together. And it's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. No, they all fit together as a piece of the puzzle. And half of these guys are all going on at the same time. So, um, I need to talk to you more about that because we did it last week. So, here you go. This chart's from uh, Stevenson again. So, here you have uh, the kings up, and then the Babylonian captivity. And then here's where 586, okay, Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed. And here's Jeremiah's ministry, and Daniel, and Ezekiel. And you can see how much they overlap. Because Daniel was taken here, all right? So Daniel's gone. Ezekiel was taken also. So now they're off prophesying over there, all right? And then the fall of Nineveh is going to be in here. And what prophet that we already mentioned that was sent to Nineveh? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, right? So God is working all these angles at once, which is what starts to like blow your mind when you start understanding this. So he uses Assyria to judge Israel, but he sends a prophet to Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Like, isn't that crazy? So the, the punisher um, becomes the punished, you know, if they don't repent. All right. So just to summarize all that down for you with the countries, all right, what we got on the board, what we've been looking at, okay, so Jerusalem is the, the central area, all right? Jeremiah is, is called here, right? And then um, Daniel and Ezekiel sent over there. Jeremiah sent over here. Temple destroyed right there. All make sense? We all good? I cover this from enough different angles that uh, we're all on the same uh, page with this? Okay. <clears throat> all right. So just lastly, same chart, again, we had last week, um, color-coded so that you know who they were. So what period of time are we in now? Well, we're now right here. So we're in this gap between the history books, all right? Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are part of the history there as the return, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel in the middle, all right? We don't need that anymore. Don't need that either. <clears throat> I did not... Uh, Normally what I do is uh, after I put all this together and I go through one more time and I edit out and take out my duplicate stuff and uh, that didn't happen. So that's a review from last week on uh, the battle at, uh, with, with um, Carchemish and, and Babylon. Okay, So let's pick up with the structure and get into the book. All right, the structure is pretty simple. Right? There's not a huge number of debates like there was with every other book pretty much that we've discussed. It's fairly straightforward with this. Um, the only real difference you might see is whether it's listed as a two-part or a three-part, but it doesn't really matter because the two-part gets broken down into a three-part either way. All right? So you have judgment and comfort or hope, if you want, to, if you want two words. All right? um, the judgment is subdivided for you up here, so I have three parts listed. All right? So if you only want two, you just put the first two together. They're both judgment. All right? The first one is judgment on Israel, okay? Judah. The first 24 chapters. The second part is judgment on the other nations, 25 to 32. And the last part, verse, or chapters 33 to 48, is going to be the comfort, the hope, the restoration that God promises. So, again, this is a theme in Scripture. After judgment comes what? Judgment. God's not done once he judges. The judgment comes because of the rebelliousness and the refusal to repent. 
once the judgment is meted out, there's the hope and there's the reconciliation that is offered in the rebuilding. Judgment covers from 593 to 586 or 87, the fall of Jerusalem. And um, you got the call and the commissioning of Ezekiel in the first three, and, and then the judgment aspects that follow that. And then in part three, covers from 586 to 570 BC, the comfort and the restoration. That's post fall, okay? Because the judgment is all the way up until the fall, right? And then after the fall, well, now we're done with judgment, right? You've been judged. So what comes next? Okay, related to the structure of the book and thinking about one of the key themes in the book, the glory of God, okay? You see that when you look at this, you have <clears throat> the glory of God and, and what happens to the glory of God. In the section from 8 to 11, which we're going to talk about, the glory of God moves to where? To the exiles. This is crazy. God removes his, his place from the temple in Jerusalem and goes to be with his people that are in exile. You would think it would be the opposite. But he actually comes to be with them. Okay? And so you see this movement. Okay? Glory is in exile. The glory is removed. The city falls. And then the glory returns and there is hope in the restoration of Israel. So that is, that is showing the flow uh, of the glory movement, if you will, in the book of Ezekiel. <clears throat> if you want to break down the structure a little bit further, and I mainly want to do this for the middle column for you. Okay? The middle column, the oracles against the nations. This is from Stevenson. Alright? And so Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. All these nations that surround Israel, okay, are going to be judged by God as well. Everything else about this chart is, is the same as the others. It's just got more details related to the, the chapter breakdowns. All right? But my point here is the middle column. So Ezekiel 1. What in the world happens in Ezekiel 1 with this vision? God shows up. Ezekiel has this call. It says in the 30th year... In the fourth month and the fifth day of the month, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. The fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin exile. The word of the Lord came directly through Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the Lord's hand was on him there. I looked, and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth, and brilliant light all around it. The call of God on Ezekiel's life. Okay? There's four elements that is part of this call related to the vision. Four elements mark the commission narratives and the prophets, and all four are present in Ezekiel's calling. These include a divine confrontation. So there's a divine confrontation. Alright? You can see that in letter B. An explanation of the prophet's task and its importance. Objections that the prophet might offer. 
and divine reassurance answering these objections and assuring the prophet of the Lord's enabling. So there's a confrontation, there's an explanation of the task, there's objections that might be offered, and reassurance. So all of these are part of this. The record of God's commissioning of Ezekiel is the longest prophetic call in the Bible. You can compare that with Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 6 or um, Jeremiah 1. God first confronted Ezekiel with himself. In other words, he showed up to him, kind of like with Isaiah. He first sees God, right? And he's like, what with me? Then he explained the prophet's task and the importance, and then he dealt with any objections he might offer. And finally, he reassured Ezekiel by promising his enabling presence. That's another thing. What did God continuously promise to all the people that he called to do something throughout basically the whole Bible? That he would be what? With them. Right? He says this to Abraham. He says this to Jacob. He says this to Joshua. He gives him to conquer the land. It's all through the scriptures. Fear not because I am with you. What does Jesus quote? I mean, you could say he says it, but he's actually quoting scripture. But he is God, so he is quoting himself, right? So, anyways, what did Jesus say? He says, fear not, right? Don't be troubled. He says what? I will be with you. Same thing, right? Old Testament, New Testament. One story, one God, right? So the same thing is going on. All right. In chapter 1, we look at this text, and we see the call, okay? And we see the glory of God, the throne room, okay? Remember, that's called a chiastic structure, right? So, the glory of God. The throne scene of Ezekiel 1 not only sets the tone for the entire book, but also the theme. The glory of Yahweh. Okay, hence that previous um, structure depicting the glory of God in the book of Ezekiel. Similar scenes to John's experience in Revelation 4 and 5, in the presence of God leaving Jerusalem to be with his people in Babylon. Which, the people never would have thought that was possible. They would have thought that was crazy. Now, I want to compare this quickly with Revelation. This is from um, Constable, I think. Dr. Constable. So Ezekiel and Revelation. Living creatures, okay, and both of them. Four faces. Man, lion, bull, and eagle. You can see they're a different order, but man, lion, bull, and eagle. Four wings in Ezekiel. Six in Revelation. Eyes on the rims in Ezekiel, full of eyes in Revelation. One like a man versus one sitting on the throne. You have a jasper stone in Revelation, but you have several different, um, or, or a different stone here, the lapis lazuli. Um, both have rainbows. And then you got the 24 elders, the lightning and thunder mentioned. And on Ezekiel, you got glory of the Lord and holy, holy, holy. Okay? So. Without trying to go into the detail or the significance of like every single part, the entire vision is designed to show the glory of God and to overwhelm Ezekiel. Just like Isaiah. He was completely overwhelmed, right? The end of this vision is to convince Ezekiel of the centrality of God in the universe. All that happens comes from God. He's the beginning, he's the end. Ezekiel is the son of man. He's a little human, right? That's what he is in this whole picture. He's a little grasshopper. It's actually not from Constable, from Dr. Homer Heater. Just comparison there. Alright? 
So, we see that that, to me, poses a, a question or a, a thought. So, when John writes Revelation, uh, John is shown things, okay? So, John, John writes what he sees also, these visions that he has, right? Well, we would expect some similarities if uh, Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Revelation are all these three guys that are being shown the throne room of God, right? Or ushered in the presence of God. Well, yeah, there should be some similarity because they're seeing the same type of thing. The other thing is <coughs> that as you read through a book like Revelation, which occurs um, a long time after Ezekiel, right? you got to realize that as the Apostle John writes this, he's writing what God shows him, right? But the Apostle John is also steeped in Judaism, which means he knows the Bible, right? Which means he knows who? Ezekiel and Isaiah. So you pick these things up in Revelation, and you got to realize how they connect and relate back uh, to what's going on here. All right. Next, the call. The first vision sets the tone for the book. So notice some of the things that I have underlined here that we have already alluded to or talked about. Okay, gives us a location on the Kibar Canal. Tells us when, okay, fifth day, fifth year, and it says the word of the Lord comes to him. And it says there's vision. So you've got different aspects that we've talked about. Date, setting, how it happens, the, the prophetic aspect, all coming uh, together here in these first verses. Alright? The Kibar Canal is a water course in Babylon. In the Old Testament, the name occurs eight times. The river Kibar. Um, it's in Ezekiel. It is eight times. The Babylonian equivalent is Kubari. And it appears on two contract tablets um, from about 443 and 423 BC on earth at Nippur. This was a great canal that branched off from the Euphrates above Babylon, but flowed 60 miles southeast through Nippur, and finally emptied back into the Euphrates near Erech. And so that is where they are. Um, in addition, okay, the phrase, the word of the Lord, occurs some 50 times in this book. 48 chapters, right? So that's more than once a chapter. The hand of the Lord that came upon Ezekiel is an anthropomorphism expression that means God is in direct control and empowerment. Alright? We also see God strengthens, God seizes, or God holds fast um, as he's giving these visions. So who's in charge of the vision? God is. Who's directing and controlling it? God is. The hand of the Lord is always a metaphor for his power. Okay? When you see the hand of the Lord in Scripture, or you think of the idea of sitting on someone's right hand, they're talking about the place of power. Okay? It's a power position. The hand of the Lord shows up, or it says God stretches out, stretches out his hand. Um, you might want to duck real fast. Like, when God's stretching out his hand, yeah, there's probably, like, thunder and lightning bolts coming out of it or something, you know? Um... I know, we always picture, you know, you got Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, and, you know, God's reaching out to, you know, Adam. But when you're reading, especially the prophets and stuff, if God's extending his hand, it's probably not the right hand of fellowship. It's probably the, uh, the right punch to the face. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, so in this case, he's not punching him in his face, all right? 
But it is the, the power of God that is upon him that is controlling the situation. So, you look at, um, I think in the Exodus narratives, God stretches out his hand. Right? And what's he do? He decimates the place. So, <clears throat> these phrases are related to revelation from God. Um, the hand reference especially distinguishes Ezekiel as being under the controlling influence of God's spirit compared to other prophets. You notice that later in the Bible, Peter tells us that the prophets, they were not just coming up with their own thing, but they were moved as the what? As the spirit of God moved in them. Mm-hmm. And an illustration is often given related to inspiration, etc., that um, it's like the, the wind in a sail that moves a boat, right? So you can't see the wind, but it fills the sail and it moves the boat. And the boat doesn't move if the wind don't fill the sails, right? So the prophets, they didn't speak, they didn't write unless God moved the sails, right? The, the wind, which, interestingly enough, in Scripture, wind and spirit is the same word. Uh, pneuma in the, in the Holy Spirit and um, ruach in the, the Hebrew. So, anyways, this is um, God working. So you got the, the vision in verse 1, the word in verse 3, the power hand of God in verse 3. All of these come come together as God reveals himself through um, and to Ezekiel. You have a point yet? All right. Um, next slide. Okay. Now, this slide is a crazy slide, so I want you all to memorize it. All right? I'm just joking. So, you don't have to memorize anything on this slide. But what this is, is it's the 14 different passages that are all dated in Ezekiel. The first one is the one we just read, okay? And it tells you the passage, it tells you Ezekiel's calendar, and it tells you a modern calendar, okay? So you can actually date these 14 different places in Ezekiel, and they're mostly pretty accurate based on the information we have and what we know historically about this time period. Now, keep in mind, it's a lot easier to date something in the five or 600 B.C. than it is uh, 1400 B.C., like the Exodus, right? So so that's what that is. That's just to help you know that like, there's been a lot of work done on Ezekiel, and like we really do have, have good data on when this stuff took place. <coughs> okay? In fact, this is from um, Ralph Anderson, or Alexander, I mean, Dr. Ralph Alexander. And <coughs> this has uh, the dates, but it also shows you, okay, with the chapter numbers and then the whole the section of, of what's going on in, in the book, all right? So again, I'm just throwing that up there with the previous one, so we can really connect these dates pretty well, okay? So let's get back to the vision. <coughs> I'm not going to comment any further on the date material, Okay. So the vision proper, okay, picks up here in verse 4. It says, I looked and there's this whirlwind, okay, coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing back and forth, brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire is a gleam like amber. The form of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They had a human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the hooves of a calf, sparkling like the gleam of polished bronze. They had human hands under their wings on their four sides. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. 
The form of each of their face was that of a man, and each of the four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle. <coughs> he continues, and he says, That is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward, each had two wings touching that of another, and two wings covering its body. Each creature went straight ahead, wherever the spirit wanted to go. They went without turning as they moved. The form of the living creatures was like the appearance of burning coals of fire and torches. And fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright, with lightning coming out of it. And the creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. Sounds pretty crazy. This is what Ezekiel sees. This first vision, this, this throne scene of what Ezekiel is shown by God, <coughs> is God's throne being visualized. And Ezekiel is, is coming face to face with this. <clears throat> now, I don't know exactly what it looks like. You have different artists. If you go on Google, you'll get like five bazillion images of you know what this looked like. But um, the one thing here, okay, is that this is about the throne. It's about the throne of God, and it's moving. It's able to move places. Now, that fits with what we're talking about in Ezekiel, because what is happening? God is moving from where? Through the temple. From the temple in Jerusalem to Babylon. To Babylon. And so that is what's going to take place in the book. <coughs> Throne stuff, okay? This is um, ancient Near East depictions of thrones and uh, chariots and cherubims and uh, the movement of God and divine thrones. Okay, Now, uh, these are like cherubim type figures on this golden um, uh, plate that's been uh, found. But I have some other stuff here. Dr. Derushi has a bunch of depictions of these and his materials as well. <coughs> and the, the first set that you see up there is related to our, our text that we were just reading um, in verses 4 to 14. These are these composite figures that have four faces, yet human bodies, um, so the depictions of Babylonian gods from the time of Ezekiel are very similar to the types of things that Ezekiel is seeing. Okay, Now, that can be confusing to us sometimes. So Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's got these visions, but in the visions, what he's seeing is stuff that's like what the Babylonians worship. You'd be like, well, why would that be? Um, so I'm going to go back to something that said earlier that Dr. Alexander mentioned, um, but I've also repeatedly said this, that God speaks in the, in the language of the culture, okay? There's, there's people that used to think, and there's some that maybe still do, that when God wrote the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, there was this movement that, that, that he wrote it in a special Holy Spirit Greek, okay? The idea was that it wasn't the same as the Greek that everybody spoke. It was a special God Greek. And people have the same idea about Hebrew sometimes. 
But I don't think any of that is valid. I, I think that's crazy. When God shows up to talk to Moses, does Moses have an interpreter? I mean, does Moses suddenly get downloaded a new language database in his head? No, God speaks to him in his own language. And you have this all through the scripture. It doesn't matter what time period or what language we're speaking. God comes and speaks in a way that the people can understand. And so, Ezekiel is in Babylon, so I'm guessing, well, there's two things I, I'm partly saying here. One, God is using stuff that Ezekiel slightly understands. At the same time, God is showing him stuff that he's never seen. Um, so, there's similarities, but there's also these differences. The, the other thing related to that, with the similarities, is that um, just because there's a lot of similarities in, in the, the culture about an idea, doesn't mean that somewhere along the line there wasn't some truth to something that got all twisted and perverted. Does that make sense? So, if what Ezekiel is seeing is the real deal, and what the rest of the culture has is a, a twisted or a perverted aspect of that, then you're going to see some relationship. There's going to be some commonality to it, um, but it won't be identical. So, that's some of what we see going on uh, here as well. Okay, so next in the, the next passage, he continues on. He says, when I looked at the living creatures, there was one wheel on the ground beside each creature that had four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their craftsmanship was like the gleam of beryl. Notice that's the third time I've had gleam underlined. Yeah, so there's something about this gleam. And all four had the same form. Their appearance and craftsmanship was like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they went in any of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. Their rims were large and frightening. It's kind of like casters. You know what casters are? It's on the bottom of some types of furniture and stuff. It's like a, it looks like a ball. You know, casters. On the rolling chairs have them. They can go in any direction, right? It's kind of like a, a, a wheel within a wheel, so it can go anyway. Their rims were large and frightening. Each of the four rims were full of eyes all around. So when the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. When the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, the creatures went in the direction the spirit was moving. The wheels rose alongside them, but the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, the wheels moved. When the creatures stood still, the wheels stood still. When the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose alongside them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Okay, so, again, Jerushi has some more ancient Near East depictions related to these, these thrones and these, uh, these movements um, that are going on here. And these aren't the wheels, but in association with the living being is a chariot-like image with wheels full of eyes. There's many images of gods riding chariots in the ancient world, and we also find composite figures full of eyes. So, you might think he's got chicken pox or something, but um, these are filled with eyes. All right, so he's got eyes all over his body, not not chicken pox. And um, so same thing. And then these thrones that move. So here he's sitting. This is like a cherubim thing, and the god is sitting on the throne, and it can be a movable throne. All right. Then he continues. the shape of an expanse with gleam. There it is again. 
like awe-inspiring crystal was spread out over the heads of the living creatures. And under the expanse, their wings extended to one another. Each of them also had two wings covering their bodies. When they moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of mighty waters, like the voice of the Almighty, and the sound of commotion, like the noise of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings, and a voice came from above the expanse over their heads, and when they stood still, they lowered their wings. And the shape of a throne with the appearance of sapphire stone was above the expanse, and there was a form with the appearance of a human on the throne high above. And from what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber, with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the form of the Lord's glory. So, at the end of all that, he tells you, God just showed up. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. So, when Alexander, Dr. Alexander, says, let the interpreter tell you what it means, the point is, he went through, what, 27 verses, 28 verses, describing this, and then he said, basically, that was God showing up. Now, what do each part of the details mean? I don't know what each part of the details mean. Um, the main point is God showed up. And when Ezekiel saw God, he fell face down, and then he heard a voice speaking. Now, again, Yerushi has compiled a list of the things. Above the chariot was a vast expanse, and above the expanse, a throne, and on the throne, one with a human appearance, the great king, the king of glory. And so these depictions, gods are seen riding chariots above winged creatures. All right, and so you have um, a god or a king on the throne, and then these are the cherubim creatures, okay? And so you have that on all these. So here, here's the cherubim again. And so each one of these, okay, is related to this throne and chariot aspect, okay? Um, let's see. These uh, cherubim, if you look in scripture, all right, when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, what did God put there? Cherubim. Yeah. With a flaming sword protecting the place, right? To guard the road to the tree of life, Genesis 3.24. So, that is similar to the Colossi of the ancient Near East who watched the entrances of the cities, the palaces, and the temples. The use of cherubim in the decoration of the tabernacle in Solomon's temple may also indicate a guarding function. So these cherubim were in the temple, they were on the curtains, they were in the, um, the artwork. Um, not only were the cherubim found in close relationship with the flaming sword <coughs> when they protected the Garden of Eden, they're also said to have walked in the midst of stones of fire in the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28, 14. We're not there yet, but... So, which is probably related to God's presence, okay? Uh, coals of fire were seen between the cherubim and the wheels of the divine chariot. That'll be in chapter 10, verse 6 as well. And so, burning coals are also related to this. And so, in this vision, Yahweh, God, is visualized as seated on a throne chariot 
with four wheels capable of going in any direction, and the wheels are empowered by the cherubim. So the, the throne chariot with the cherubim is seen as kind of like a storm cloud. And I don't know if you've done much studying on this. Um, it's probably my other class that I gave out um, a handout that I put together several years ago about God as a warrior. Okay, was that my uh, background class? The God as a warrior stuff? Yeah. So um, that is actually a very big theme in Scripture, God as a warrior. Uh, not just as he conquers, for instance, Canaan for the people, but throughout the Psalms, throughout the Scriptures, that, that God rides the clouds, that he is a, a warrior, he has creation at his control, uh, he has angels at his control, he's got the weather at his control, and so all through Scripture you see this, and you, some of this is coming through here. Psalm 104, verse 3, Isaiah 19, 1. So you see that Yahweh uses the clouds as a chariot, okay, that's his ride, that's his wheels, and he rides the swift cloud controlling the weather, much like the storm gods in the Canaanite stories do it, okay? Um, it doesn't mean the cherubim are clouds, it just means that you have these different images that are used to discuss God moving places, all right? So... Um, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant were placed two cherubim facing one another, Exodus 25, 18-20. In the tabernacle, the cherubim were embroidered on the ten curtains of white fine twined linen and material of blue, purple, and scarlet. Okay? Um, in Solomon's temple, in the inner sanctuary, there was two olive wood cherubim overlaid with gold. The cherubim were ten cubits high and each had two wings that were five cubits long. Okay? So the wings spread or wingspan of each was ten cubits. So these cherubim are all over the place. On the wood panels of the temple were carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, both in the inner and the outer rooms. So this is usually thought to relate to the cherubim and the garden and the trees all, all coming together here. And so Solomon also had ten lobber stands cast from bronze after the pattern of a wagon or a chariot. And they had four wheels with axles attached to a third frame on which panels were fixed. And each of those panels were decorated with lions, oxen, and cherubim and wreaths. The same direction was applied at the top of the stands. And so, and until now, we're seeing the same stuff. The passage was 1 Kings 7, by the way, for the Solomon, the lobber, and not. So, God's, God's throne... Okay, his, his movable throne, his power and his majesty, all, all shown up here. Um, the number four appears uh, 12 times in verses 5 through 21. Let's see. Uh, did I miss something? Wake up. Yeah. <coughs> all right, so... So God's throne in the scriptures. Um, let's skip to one of my verses. In 1 Chronicles, the weight of a refined gold for the altar of incense and the plants for the chariot of the gold cherubim spread out their wings and cover the ark of the Lord's covenant. So here you've got that word chariot and cherubim and God's throne and the, the ark and mercy seat okay, coming together. All right. Again in 1 Kings, um, 
talking about Solomon that we were just referring to. He made the ten bronze water carts. Each water cart was six feet long, six feet wide, four and a half feet, etc. But look at verse 30. Each cart had four bronze wheels with the bronze axles. All right? And so down 33, the wheel's design was similar to that of the chariot wheel. Their axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of cast metal. So you're seeing this in the scriptures. And in Daniel, I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool, and his throne was flaming. Its wheels were blazing fire. So they got wheels and fire together again in Daniel. All right, so all these aspects coming together. All right, so again, you can see here, this is some kind of movable um, throne thing that is, that is going on. All right, the idea of the four faces. Okay, the number four appears 12 times in verses 5 to 21. Um, that's quite a few times in uh, less than 20 verses. Its significance derives from the ancient Near Eastern and biblical practice of speaking of the totality of the earth as the four corners. You ever read in the scriptures, like the four corners of the earth or the four winds? You're like, did they really think there was corners on that earth? You know, let's not talk about that. You'll get somebody, like seriously, you'll get people and they'll be like, See, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. It's talking about four corners. It's like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know how to read what they wrote. So it has to do with the totality. So the four winds of heaven, for instance. Since this usage does not occur prior to the exile period, it may reflect direct Akkadian influence. For at least 2,000 years, various Mesopotamian kings presented themselves with the formula, king of the four quarters. In other words, king of the world. All right? So... What they're saying is, when they were exposed, the Israelites, to this culture, the phrases in that culture were picked up and brought back home and used in their literature. Now think about that for just a minute. How many cultures have the, excuse me, have the Israelites been exposed to? I don't, I don't need a number. Yeah, a lot is fine. Okay? So... Especially if you're looking at the whole timeline of Scripture. Okay? They've been exposed to um, every culture that surrounds them and all of these cultures from Egypt to Mesopotamia that are far from them. All right? Where did Abraham come from? Abraham came from over here. Right? So all of these cultures come together. I don't know. There's almost a melting pot aspect going on. And so when you're looking at scriptures, it's not just Hebrew culture you've got to check into now, right? Now, depending on the time period, you've got any number of other cultures that may have influenced the word choices that are used in the scripture. Well, we just complicated things a lot, didn't we? So, <clears throat> an Ishtar hymn dating from about 1600 B.C. says, By her orders, she, Ishtar, has subjected to him the king, the four world regions at his feet, and the total of all peoples, she has decided to attach them to his yoke. The expression signifies the king's rule and dominion over the entire world. The number four combined with a different faith symbolizes the divine capacity to be in control of the whole world, to see everything and to be present everywhere without any effort whatsoever. So, that is what is likely going on in chapter one. Um, and the, the cherubim, they're, they're these supernatural spirit beings. That they're not God. They serve God. But they're these div 
divine type created supernatural being um, that worked for him, etc. Okay. Um, so the throne in scripture, we looked at that. Okay. The four faces. Alright, the commission. Chapters uh, 2 and 3. Uh, the Son of Man, chapter 2, 1, over 90 times in Ezekiel, we mentioned that. Um, contrary to the use in Daniel, the only other use where it is used of, of Christ, okay? The watchman, okay, that's the picture in the bottom right corner, all right? An ancient watchman in an ancient city looking for marauders or enemy attacks or et cetera, et cetera, right? So you're responsible for giving the alarm, all right? So after Ezekiel is, is, is shown this vision of God, he, he encounters what God is doing, then God calls him to a work, okay, similar to Isaiah, right? And that work is to be a watchman. That work is to warn the people of what is coming. They don't listen. That's on them. That's not on him. You, you can't do anything about that. Your your job is is to warn them about what is coming down the pipe. Okay. And so that's what goes on here. <clears throat> Faithfulness. That's the key. In chapter four, okay, the siege symbols. All right. The first symbolic act is the brick, right? Well, what happens with the brick, okay? Ezekiel is to take a brick, draw a map of Jerusalem so that it can be identified, and pretend to lay siege against it. What siege? When you surround it, okay? He will do this by making a siege wall, a ramp, and by placing tents and battering rams. What's he doing? He's playing with toys. Like, seriously. Like, he's playing with toys to show the people what's going to happen. All Israel is to understand by this that God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to besiege Jerusalem and capture it. Alright? So that's chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Okay, the second symbol is lying on his side. Okay? Now, um, there's, there's some debate over why he lies there on his side for the amount of time that he does and what all of that means. And again, um, we're going to go with the big picture and not get bogged down in the details, not for this study at least. So there's suggestions that the 430 years in Egypt forms the backdrop for it. And Judah is to be punished for 40 years, um, like in the wilderness. Israel, 390 years. So whatever it is, um, if you use Jack Finnegan, he's, done a, uh, he's got a book on the chronology of the Bible. Um, his data, there's approximately 445 days between Vision 1 and Vision 2 which is chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 1. So, um, anyways, that's the second symbol, okay? The laying down. Um, and the people are going to be punished, right? That's the point of it. The third symbolic act is eating uh, rationed food in chapter 4, 9 to 17. The lack of food is illustrated by taking certain staples, making bread from them, and eating them for 390 days. He is to take scales so as to ration the food to 20 shekels a day. The water is likewise limited, and barley cakes are to be baked over human excrement. Okay, this latter 
aspect will symbolize that the Jews are going to eat unclean food in captivity. When Ezekiel protests about the non-kosher cooking fuel, see, this is interesting. Why does God have him order him to use a non-kosher, unclean method, right? It's like that's outside the normal thing. Well, that makes no sense. He allows him to use cow dung instead. So, the, the first of these illustrations represents the fact that the food will be limited during the siege. Okay? You know that during the time period of the kings, people had gotten so desperate that they were eating their own children. Okay? There's, there's I think, two stories in the book of Kings where that takes place. There's one where this woman says, today we eat my, your, your baby and tomorrow we'll eat mine. And the ladies agreed, said, okay. So they ate her baby this, this day. And tomorrow comes around, and the other woman's like, okay, where's your baby? And she's like, no, we're not even that. So it's like, what? You agree? There are, you know, think about this. This is how bad the situations are. The fourth symbolic act is the cutting of the hair in chapter 5, 1 to 12. The conclusion of the siege is illustrated by what Ezekiel does with his hair. Ezekiel is to shave his head and his face with a sharp sword. Okay, hope you're good. Can you use your blade good? Um, the hair will then be divided into three parts. One part he burns, one part he cuts with a sword, and one part he scatters to the wind, waving a sword. A few he puts on the edges of his clothes. Some he throws in the fire. The reason for the judgment, he says, is that this, um, God has selected them, Israel, to be the center of the nation. But Israel rebelled and rejected God's ordinances and statutes. They're worse than the nations around them. Therefore, God is judging them. The siege is going to be terrible. Fathers eating sons, etc. And many will be scattered. God will not spare them because they practice idolatry in the sanctuary, which is going to be kind of the next section he's going to talk about. All right. And this is the result is that God's anger will be satisfied um, through this. All right. Y'all still with me? Time's flying, isn't it? It's almost 1 o'clock already. Well, we're on slide uh, 166 out of 96. Okay, so let's pick up. The next section is chapter 6 and 7. It is um, woes about judgment. And we're going to like blitz right through this as in move to chapter 8. So in chapters 8 through 11, we encounter um, something very significant to the book. It is the movement of God. All right. And the sanctuary. Uh, Yahweh himself would become the true temple. In 11.16, he says, Therefore say, this is what the Lord God says, Though I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. So, even though he scattered them there, he will be their sanctuary where they have gone. So, the idea that the only sanctuary and temple is in Jerusalem, and now we're scattered so we don't have one, is not valid. Okay? Now, so with that being said, okay, this is this is uh, vision number two, okay, chapters 8 through 11. So this is the temple. This is Solomon's temple. Okay? You enter to the east side. 
The bronze altar, this is called the inner court. The bronze sea, that's where they had the water, the, the bronze labor. You know. um, these are different rooms that were in here, okay? The showbread was here on the table. The lampstands are here. The incense altar, remember, Zechariah goes, and he's offering incense. That's the closest you could ever get to the, quote, presence of God, unless you were the high priest once a year in the Day of Atonement. Why? Because the altar of incense is right there, just outside the big curtain. Okay? So when Zechariah got to go do that, that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, the closest he'd ever be. Okay? Now, the Ark is back here, the Ark of the Covenant. All right? So it's all the way in the back. It's important for you to understand that because of what we're going to talk about now. Israel's covenant faithfulness is developed in chapters 8 through 11. Okay? Their abomination in the temple in chapter 8. The image that provokes jealousy in 8.3 stands adjacent to the glory of the God of Israel. So you look at it. In the sixth year, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting in front of me. And there the hand of the Lord God came to me. Okay, So he's with the elders of Judah, the leaders of Judah. I looked, and there was a form that had the appearance of a man, who must seem to be his waist down with fire, from his waist up something that looked bright like a gleam of an amber. He stretched out what appeared to be a hand and took me by the hair of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and carried me in visions to, of God to Jerusalem. So, God is going to show him something in Jerusalem. To the entrance of the inner gate that faces north, where the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. I saw the glory of the God of Israel there, like the vision I had seen in the plain. God is showing him that they are practicing idolatry, not only in Judah, not only in Jerusalem, in the temple area, which was built to worship him. The Lord said, Son of man, look towards the north. I looked towards the north, and there was this offensive statue north of the altar gate at the entrance. Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abomination the house of Israel is committing here? So that I must depart from my sanctuary, you will see even greater abominations. This is the idolatry of the elders. So the people of Judah are engaged in pagan worship right amidst the presence of God in chapter 8. He continues on. Going through this, he shows the pagan practices in the temple. And what is going to begin to happen is that the glory of God is going to begin to move out of here and move out completely. So normally he comes, the glory of God comes to Shekinah glory, and he, he comes atop the mercy seat, right, between the cherubim, right? So the ark is like God's throne. Now think about this imagery that we've just learned about from Ezekiel, right, in the ancient Near East. So as... As the Levites were going throughout the land, think of the time of Joshua now, right? The Levites are going around the land, and they're carrying the ark on their shoulders, okay? And there's cherubim on the ark, right? In a sense, there's almost a sense that they're carrying the chariot of who? God. Of God. So that adds a little something to why it's such a big deal that they one day put it on an ox cart to carry it. Right? Because it's not a box. 
God is there. And the glory cloud begins to leave the earthly temple, moving from the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the entrance to the Holy of Holies, filling the temple with glory. Why? Because of this idolatry that is seen. Um, <clears throat> so that's stage one. It's going to move out of there to here. Stage two, two in chapters 10. So chapter 9 covers that. Chapter 10. The Lord commissions that burning coals be taken from the heavenly throne room, from between the cherubim, and scattered over the city. The coals of fire for sacrifice from the heavenly altar are the fuel from which God's wrath against sin is satisfied. And whereas in Isaiah's vision, they purify Isaiah himself when they touch his mouth. Here they consume the wicked. The glory of God's presence in the earthly temple moves from the threshold of the entrance to the most holy place to the entrance of the temple's east gate. Moves to there. Getting ready to go where? Out the door. Right? So, stage 3, chapter 11, 1 to 25. Ezekiel is commissioned to rebuke the idolaters of Jerusalem, declaring that the coming of exile is divine judgment against their pagan practice. Yahweh promises to preserve a remnant, and then the glory of Yahweh completely departs from the temple and from Jerusalem and hovers over the Mount of Olives east of the city. Go on. But where is he going to? Going to Babylon. Going on a road trip. All right. So that is part of the progression from 8 to 11 <coughs> that takes place. This idea of cherubim that we've talked about as guardians and is related to the temple. If you connect that with the imagery of Eden and the idea that Eden was the original temple, then you continue to expound upon this idea of how all these uh, pieces kind of fit together and uh, the temple throne room, etc. Alright, so the new Davidic kingdom in chapter 17, okay? Ezekiel 17 is an allegory of the cedar in Lebanon, which is David's house, okay, with an indictment of the last um, person on the throne from him, Zedekiah, who relied on Egypt rather than on Yahweh. But, in this indictment, a tender shoot is going to grow to overtake all the other trees, the trees representing the kingdoms of the world, and a new, rule, excuse me, a new world ruler will come from humble origins which lines up with Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 11.1, and Micah 4.1. Okay, so this humble servant, okay, this new ruler. But he's going to rule over all the trees, but not trees, kingdoms, right? And 17. In chapter 18, um, you see the responsibility of individuals of each generation. So, okay, your parents were wicked, okay, that's fine, but you need to meet God, all right? In chapter 19, you see a review of the, of the kingship, what has happened with the kings. And in chapter 20, you see salvation history being reviewed. And then in chapters 21 to 23, uh, the fall of Jerusalem and um, the threat of the fall of Jerusalem. And the rightful king in chapter 21. Okay? Amidst the message of destruction of Jerusalem, the temple and the land, the priesthood, all that, there would be one to come in the future, okay? And this is the promise that is talked about in the rightful king. 
Kaiser says, one last installment in the developing doctrine of promise is to be found in the first section of Ezekiel. As the prophet unleashed his message of destruction against Jerusalem, the temple in the land of Israel, he was instructed to mark the crossroads where the advancing king of Babylon would need to determine whether he was going to take the road southeast to the Ammonites or the road to Jerusalem. Even though Nebuchadnezzar would use divination, so he's going to, you know, check liver lines and bones and blah, blah, blah. Okay? But Ezekiel is saying, he thinks he's doing that, but I'm actually determining it through his pagan usage of that. Okay? As for the wicked Davidic prince Zedekiah, he should remove his crown, and the high priest should remove his mitre. For the kingdom and the priesthood, as experienced up to that point in Israel's history, would be abolished and would suffer interruption for a time. They would remain in ruins until the advent of one appointed by Yahweh reclaimed them, until he comes whose right it is. This passage is remarkable, similar, similar to Genesis 49.10, and the use of Shiloh. <clears throat> no doubt Ezekiel is deliberately harking back to the Messianic promise given to Judah as her only hope in her hour of tragedy. When David and Aaron's line had failed to carry out their divine mission, the earnest of the promise must cease until the one to whom the kingship and priesthood together belong. So not a separate king and a separate priest, but together. When he appeared, then crown and mitre would be given to this new and final king-priest who would be the Messiah. Meanwhile, the Messiah's counterpart continued to manifest himself in a series of anti-Messiahs. Okay? You're going to see in Isaiah 14, we talked about that. Anti-Messiah. He means people who act like a messiah but they're not so the king of babylon in isaiah 14 or if we get to it today ezekiel 28 the king of tyre okay history is not just a contest between mere mortals it was simultaneously a supernatural battle for dominion and satan had his own succession of tyrants corresponding to god's davidic line of successors as well as his climactic person the tyrant of all tyrants okay that's walter kaiser in his book uh, the promised plan of god Alright, so in this new Davidic kingdom that is going to be set up with a new rightful king, alright? So as I just mentioned, these anti-Messiahs, Babylon and Tyre, okay? That have set themselves up to rule the world. But we just saw that there's going to be this one tree that's going to rule all the trees. And who's that going to be? Jesus. Yeah, it's not going to be Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's not going to be Ashurbanipal. It's not going to be any of these guys, right? It's going to be Jesus. It's not going to be... Trump, it's not going to be Obama, right? It's going to be Jesus, right? So, that moves us into chapters 25 to 32. This is the oracles against the foreign nations, and this is the pivot point of the book, okay? And so, with that, uh, I think we are going to get into chapter 28 in just a second. So, one of these is Tyre, okay? Chapter 26, 1 through 3. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said about Jerusalem, Good, the gateway to the peoples is shattered. She has been turned over to me. I will be filled now that she lies in ruins. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. See, I am against you, Tyre. I will raise up many nations against you, just as the sea raises its waves. You know, there's a principle in the Bible that tells us not to rejoice over other people's evil and, and misfortunes, right? Okay, well, he just did this, right? So, <clears throat> like, oh, good. The, the way is paved for us to come in and, and take over. And God says, not so quick. Okay? And so Tyre 
<coughs> Tyre's over here on the coast side, okay? Jerusalem's down here. Tyre's up here. Now, geographically, if you zoom in, okay, you see that actually Tyre juts out, okay? You have this section that juts out here. From an aerial view from the top, it looks more like that. But if you go up and you look at what that would be like up there, <coughs> you'll see that Tyre is on a rocky island about a half mile off the coast, surrounded by massive walls rising 150 feet, considered invincible. Nebuchadnezzar tried for 13 years to take it. Never did. Well, guess who comes in and takes it? Alexander the Great. In a seven-month siege. What Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do in 13 years, Alexander does in seven months. Which, for him, was still at one time. He de the demolished ruins of the mainland were used as rubble to make a causeway across the water. Then he confiscated ships because... Um, Alex didn't have a fleet of ships. So he confiscated ships from Sidon and, and Biblos to hamper the fleet of Tyre. Tyre had a, a great navy. So he, he, he took out the mainland and built a causeway with the rubble. Then he got ships from Sidon and took them to go up against the ships of Tyre. And then um, there was an area of the wall that was a little bit weaker and so his third prong on this was to then attack the wall. As the infantry came to the causeway, the ships held Tyre's fleet at bay, and then the rest of the fleets breached the weakened walls on the southern wall. Tyre fell on July 29, 332 B.C. Now, so this is, we just jumped forward, right? A whole bunch of years. So I'm telling you how the prophecy about Tyre and Ezekiel, a couple hundred years later, gets fulfilled. Thousands were killed. 30,000 survivors were sold into slavery. 2,000 troops were crucified. The ancient Tyre <coughs> located on that little section that juts out. Okay? And so, it takes a while before they get their due. But they'll get their due. Okay? Now, uh, the next slide up here <coughs> depicts the fortress. And you can see this view this being up, up kind of high. And it's this impregnable thing. And what you have here is actually they're paying uh, tribute money. Um, but for them to get their tribute money paid uh, over to the Assyrians, um, they got to get in their boats and take it down and, and go. So <coughs> we'll bring it to the mainland. All right. So that's Tyre. And Greece, okay, so Alexander comes in from Greece, and you can see so Tyre is, is way over here. So um, that's how that's going to go down. In 26, we continue talking about Tyre. All right? And he says, They will destroy the walls of Tyre and demolish her towers. I will scrape the soil from her and turn her into a bare rock. She will become a place in the sea to spread nets, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. She will become plunder for the nations, and her villages on the mainland will be slaughtered by the sword. Then they will know what? That I am Yahweh. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I am about to bring the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, king of kings, against Tyre from the north, with horses and chariots and cavalry and a vast company of troops. He will slaughter your villages on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you and will build a ramp and raise a wall of shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and tear down 
your towers with his iron tools. His horses will be so numerous that their dust will cover you. When he enters your gates as an army enters a breach city, your walls will shake from the noise of the cavalry, the wagons, and the chariots. Can you imagine? I mean, we don't live in this day and age. We don't even understand warfare, right? Um, unless you've been in the military. Like, you have no idea about warfare. So go back to what I said earlier about these places being like 40 or 50 acres, you know? That's probably half of the campus that you're sitting on. And these hundreds of horses and chariots are just streaming in. I mean, it is. It's going to be noisy. They're clamoring. The thunder of them. Um, you think of a herd of elephants, you know, or camels, right? The Midianites had the camels, right? The, the first camel cavalry uh, was the Midianites, and they're fast. Um, imagine these guys coming in with all their, their soldiers, their chariots. Trample all your streets with the hooves of his horses. He'll slaughter your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will take your wealth as spoil and plunder your merchandise. They will demolish your walls and tear down your beautiful homes. Then they will throw your stones, your timber, and soil to the water. So, this is what God is going to do to the arrogant, proud nation of Titus. The same thing that he said, basically, that he was going to do to the arrogant Babylon. The same thing that happens, I think, in chapter is it 7 in Daniel, that he does to Nebuchadnezzar, to humble Nebuchadnezzar, because he thinks, that he's literally, I mean, it says here the king of kings. Well, Nebuchadnezzar took that a little too far. He's not the king of kings. He's the king of little kings, right? But he's not the king of kings, right? And so God had to humble him. All right. Now you get to chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Yeah. Which he did, and Nebuchadnezzar sieged it for 13 years. So notice, first off, he said in the mainland. So there's the mainland, and then there's that part that juts out that was like a fortress. So Nebuchadnezzar did, and for 13 years he laid siege. He never did capture the, the island part. The mainland part, he did. Which is why they're sending out their tribute money to the mainland. So Ezekiel 28. So Ezekiel 28 is a parallel passage to Isaiah 14 that people oftentimes think deal with Satan and the fall of Satan. Um, I don't think it does. Well, a lot of people do. It's a common view. All right. Um, the closest common view to that is that it's about the real king of Tyre, um, but behind him are spiritual forces. Satan, okay? And so there's this, this backstory that behind the evil human king, you know, is the evil, uh, you know, spiritual Satan king, you know? Um, that would be a little more accurate in my opinion. Um, and then some people just think it's completely not about the king of Tyre. And I don't think there's any validity really for that. Um, because the whole chapter is about Anyways, chapter 28, which Mike Heiser, he works at Logos, and he's big on, uh, I've mentioned him before to some of you guys, uh, the Divine Council. He's got a website with, I think, three or 4,000 different articles. Like, he is the king of knowing about Divine Council. Doesn't mean he's right, but he's the king of, like, the compilation of it all. So he's got a couple of books that came out in the last couple of years, uh, The Unseen Realm 
and supernatural content. One's like uh uh economics and the other's uh easier read. They're both in the same thought. Anyways My point in all that is that he, he argues that um there's definitely some spiritual aspects behind so he kinda holds to close to the view of Satan being you know at least behind it if not more so than that. Okay? So in in twenty eight then what you get is a, there's two main views, alright? <coughs> uh, the Satan view and the King in the City view. Okay? And the issue is wh- which one of these is going on and is it <coughs> the king, like I said, or is it really Satan um, that's behind this? So we don't have time to do a, a full run-through on this, but if you, if you read 28 first off, you've got to understand that 28 comes right after uh, you know 27 and 26, and 26 and 7 are about the fall of Tyre, the real place, right? So you'll have to... If you think it's about Satan, you've got to argue and, and demonstrate that there's a sudden change. We move from the real place to the spiritual, okay? And then the, the, the thing that bothers people the most are some of the, the verbiage that relates to, like, the Garden of Eden. So in 28, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. So first off, from my view, I mean, he just said it's the king of Tyre. So if that's what it says, that's what it is, unless there's some other reason to think otherwise, right? So he says, you were the seal of perfection. And then people are like, oh, but he can't be. You're not perfect. Okay, well, perfect doesn't necessarily mean perfect, right? When Jesus says, be perfect, right, or Abraham was perfect or blameless, uh, perfect has to do with fulfilling or to maturity, so fulfilling what you were put here to do. So when James talks about being perfect, what's he really mean? A mature Christian, uh, fulfilling what God's put you here for. So uh, that's one aspect on that. And again, that's one of those words, uh, by the way, that is kind of not sure what it means. So you were the seal of perfection, uh, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. So there's perfect again, right? Um, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So they're like, oh wait, there was Eden. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. So it can't be the real king of Tyre. Okay, that's possible, right? But here's another possibility. When he says you were in Eden, he doesn't really mean the garden of Eden. He means, like, Eden was beautiful, right? It was the best. So maybe he's saying that's where you are. You know what I'm saying? Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, diamond. So this is where they get the idea that Satan was this like glorious like gemstone thing, um, etc. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Okay? Oh, so now we're like, oh, so he says he's a cherub. So, like these are legit questions. Like, is he a cherub? Or is he saying that you were a guardian cherub? You were put over this area to guard, etc., etc.? Um, for I had appointed you. You were on a holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones um, from the day you were created. Now, the problem is that every one of these phrases has to be investigated. Okay? Holy mountain of God, fiery stones, um, all this. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways <coughs> until wickedness was found in you. Alright? Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. Now, see, here we go. Wait. The abundance of your trade? 
Well, is that the Satan or the King of Tyre? The King of Tyre, right? They're trading, right? It's, he's on the sea. You were filled with violence and you sinned, so I expelled you and drave from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub. All right? So there's an alternative uh, translation of that. Instead of, instead of banished you, comma, guardian cherub, it's the guardian cherub banished you. And that says two different things, doesn't it? One alludes to the idea that he's some kind of cherub, some spiritual being. The other alludes to the idea that, um, no, you've been kicked out. Um, your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom, so I threw you down to the earth. That's one of the phrases also. So see, he threw you to the earth, so he couldn't have been the king of Tyre, um, unless he is speaking metaphorically, right? I made a spectacle of you before kings. Okay, so that's why it's the same sense. I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. So I threw you to the earth, you're like, yeah, that sounds like Satan. He's from the earth, right? So then I made a spectacle of you before kings. Well, but how was Satan made a spectacle before kings? So you see, it is confusing, right? You're like, what's this? No, it's this. It's this. It's this. It's this. Okay. So watch it. Um, you profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities. Let's trade again. I sent out fire from within you, and it consumed you. So fire from within you consumed you. And then I reduced you to ashes. So wait, Satan's been reduced to ashes? He doesn't exist anymore? Right? You see how you could get something from that? Right? Obviously that's not what it's saying. Right? Uh, I, I said of everyone watching you. So everyone saw this happen. All those who knew you among the nations are appalled at you. So the nations all know. You become an object of horror and will never exist again. Alright, so. In my view, it is the king of Tyre. It's a judgment against him. It's in the middle of the section of the, of the uh, book that deals with judgment against the nations. I, I think that's what's going on. Um, there are other arguments, as I've already mentioned, to be made. And there are disputable, respectful people that hold them and have held them for a long time. Um, what I think has happened, I think I mentioned this with Isaiah 14, is that I think all these different passages have been pulled together and formed something new. And this is... Uh, this is the SPSV thing. This is why um, in the Gospels, um, you ever read a uh, chronology of the Gospels? Or one of those where they take everything from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they put them all together? You know what I'm talking about with this mm -hmm. stuff? Okay, so uh, it's beneficial for a chronological reading, okay? As, as close as you could get, I suppose. Um, but it destroys all four Gospels. Because what does it do? It creates a fifth Gospel. It would be like this, okay? Um, give me a Christmas movie. Uh, give me another one. Okay, give me another one. A Christmas story. Okay, give me another one. Okay, so all three of those are about Christmas, or at least they're about the Christmas setting, right? As a grim thing, right? So there's four. So, but if you took all four of those movies and you ran them all together,
four separate gospels, right? And it's not all run together as the same thing. Because each of the four is about Jesus, yes, he's the Savior, he's God, he's king. But each of them has a different focus. And it's set up that way on purpose. So does that make sense? So why did I say all that? Because Ezekiel has something to say, and Isaiah has something else to say in Isaiah 14. And then the garden stuff in Eden has something else to say. And then John has something else to say in Revelation. And yes, they all have, without understanding and appreciating their background and their context, and then throw them all together, I think we've not created a new thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And that's how I think we end up with this idea about Satan. Now, I'm going to make another comment. <coughs> so that's how systematic theology works, by the way. So systematic theology pulls stuff from all over the place and puts it together and tries to comprehend it. Biblical theology uh, traces it through the scope of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and see how it unfolds and relates to each other. So there's a benefit to both. Okay, Systematic theology has a benefit. You, it's kind of topically driven. Okay, I prefer biblical theology because I want to see how the plan unfolds. Does that make sense? Uh, again, systematic theology has a, has a benefit. You know, you want to study salvation, so you look at everything the Bible says about salvation. But what's the same danger you face? It's the same thing I just mentioned, right? You face the danger of pulling all these verses without understanding their context. You all with me on this? And so, to really do it properly would take a long time, right? I mean, if you got 100 verses in your, let's just say, systematic theology on soteriology, which is salvation, and you got 100 verses, right? So to really understand that, you have to go exegete all 100 verses in their proper context, book they come from, and understand how that verse fits into the book, how that book fits into the Bible, etc. 100 verses together. Does that make sense? That's that's a big chore, right? Yeah. So, all right, I'm probably towards the point. So, if you still hold to uh, it, Satan being here, that's that's fine. We can still go get uh, coffee and have uh, lunch together, and uh, we're still friends. So. Um, where are we at? We gotta move. Um, so that's Tyre in chapter 28. Alright, and you might get in Tyre. <clears throat> so, where is... So, here are the nations, okay, that they are prophesying against, okay? So, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Sidon, Tyre, Philistia, and then Egypt down to the south, alright? So, that's where they are. You probably know where most of those are at this point. The Good Shepherd imagery in chapter 34, Okay? Um, this is a benevolent ruler that was trusted to lead. He's going to gather the scattered. All right? um, you can see all these references. Uh, John 10, Jesus picks up on the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Well, where did he get that idea from? Old Testament. All right? I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Isaiah, or I mean Ezekiel, loved to call the future Davidic king a prince. In fact, 20 out of his 38 usages of the word prince refer to a coming Davidic king, the Messiah. That's Will Kaiser again, promise playing God. So, this whole good shepherd imagery that is going on. In chapter 34, verses 11 and following, For this is what the Lord God says, I myself will search for my flock, and I will look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples to gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land, and I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. God is going to go. He's going to bring his, his sheep back to himself. He is going to go look for them. For I will, tra- I will tend them with good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. 
There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 23? Mm. Um, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, banish the injured, strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong, and I will shepherd them with justice. The Lord God says to you, my flock, I'm going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goat. Now, what's that sound like? Matthew 24, 5, right? Yeah, the Olivet Discourse? All right, so so where does that come from? Is Jesus just making up stuff? I don't think so. Ezekiel's got something to say about it right there. So, the shepherd imagery, okay? It continues, the idea of the, the shepherd and salvation, okay? Um, what does he say? I will sprinkle clean water, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart of flesh, your stone heart will be removed. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and observe my ordinances. That last one should ring a bell with Jeremiah 31, right? New covenant, new heart, which is imagery that comes through in Ezekiel is as well. Um, the shepherds um, follows right on the heels. Looks like this is actually um, out of order. It should have been before. With the new cleansing and birth in chapter 36. Similar in scope to Jeremiah's new covenant is Ezekiel's depiction and foreshadowing of John 3.10. When Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, says you must be born again, right? What are you talking about? Are you a, a leader of the Jewish people and you don't know what it means? We're like, well, why would he know what it means? And it's kind of strange. Except for the fact that Ezekiel talks about it in Ezekiel 36. And Nicodemus was supposed to be an expert in the law, the Bible. Here Ezekiel promised that Yahweh, for the sake of his holy name, would vindicate Israel by regathering them to their own land from all the countries. Thus, through Israel, all the nations of the earth would acknowledge that God had performed what, had, what he had promised, and his holy reputation and character would remain untarnished. <clears throat> and so then you get to the Valley of Dry Bones, all right? As they are <clears throat> reunited and restored, the Valley of Dry Bones, likely the same place that Ezekiel received his first revelation of destruction of Jerusalem in 311. Just as Adam had life breathed into him, so would Israel. The separated tribes would be reunited under a new David, which, think about Matthew, okay, the genealogy of Matthew, Jesus is the new David, right? Therefore, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord God says, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know what? That I am Yahweh. My people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Now, if God has to show something, wouldn't that be showing something? Taking dead bones and making them alive? I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know I'm Yahweh. I've spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. And so, in the in the dry bones, what, what is God demonstrating or promising that he's going to do? Okay? <coughs> There's going to be one Israel. Okay, he's going to make one Israel. He's going to make one nation, one king, one God, one shepherd forever. And the nations will know I am Yahweh. The nations will know I am Yahweh. One nation, king, God, and shepherd forever. So, the 70 years of captivity, okay? They're figured two different ways. Okay, this is another debated aspect, all right? So either from 605 in the first deportation to 538 when Cyrus says you can go back, all right? This is the, remember Jeremiah said 70 years, right? 
So Ezekiel is covering this time period. So when does it end? Or from the third deportation in 586 when the temple was taken down to 515 when the temple is completed. Okay, two different ways that people arrive at the 70 uh, years, all right? We don't have time to discuss which is more accurate or either way. The point is, God said 70 years would be there, and they were there 70 years. <clears throat> now, Gog and Magog. Okay, this is another highly debated passage of Scripture that we aren't even going to really attempt to do anything with, okay? Um, there's an attack by Gog on Israel, who is living in peace, okay? An unprotected town as a result of chapters class, um, and then I guess we'd have to spend some more time on it, but we're pretty much running out of time. In fact, we're so much out of time that we're not even going to watch the videos that go with it. So, because I need to finish in like 12 minutes. So I will post the video. There's actually two of them, which means they're close to 20 minutes between the two of them, okay? But I'll post the link for you so you can watch those if you want them. I assume you maybe want them on other people. Um, but... <laughs> To read the scriptures um, for Ezekiel. Gives you a good overview of the whole thing. Alright? So, 70 years of captivity to the Gog and Magog. And then you go to final things in chapters 40 um, to 48. Okay? And so, as part of the, the final things, we're going to see Ezekiel's um, vision. And you can compare e Ezekiel's vision with <coughs> the vision that John has in Revelation with the New Jerusalem. Okay? So Ezekiel is taken in the vision to a high mountain. John is carried in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. A man uses a rod to measure the dimensions of the temple. An angel in John's revelation measures the city with a rod. The entire temple area is a perfect square. The entire city is a perfect cubit. The presence of the glory of the Lord enters the temple. There's no need of a sun or a moon because the Lord illuminates his city. <coughs> no foreigner is admitted. Nothing unclean and no unbeliever is allowed. A river of water flows out. A river of water of life comes from the throne of God. Let me make one quick comment on that last <coughs> one. Um, the Bible Project people have a, a great little video on, I think it's on holiness. It takes this idea that you saw in Ezekiel 47 about this river coming out, okay, and this river that comes out in John's Revelation. <coughs> And traces that through the through the Bible, biblical theology stuff, okay? Um, and it shows how those are connected and what God's been doing all along of trying to bring all the nations to him. Did you notice when you were reading this about the what should have sounded familiar with the trees of life on the banks of the of the river and this uh, this river of life and all this? That comes from where? Garden of Eden. And then it's in Ezekiel, right? Kind of in the middle of the Bible. And then it's in Revelation, the end of the Bible, right? 
So this is picking up on the temple imagery and what God's doing with, with the whole world. All right, there's a total of 12 gates around the city. There's 12 gates to the city in Revelation. And the name of the city is the Lord is there and the throne of God shall be there. So you look at these and there's no way this is accidental, right? So there's a connection between uh, what's going on at the end of Ezekiel and what God is doing. So Ezekiel chapter 43 says the glory of the Lord entered the temple by way of the gate that faced east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so, as Ezekiel moves to, to finish out his book, um, chapters 40 to 48, he, he's basically implementing the plan of chapter 37, 24 to 28. The climax of all this, God dwelling with his people. I've probably said that before in here, but the Bible is about God dwelling with his people in the place that he's created in his presence God's people in God's place in God's presence that's the Bible God's people in God's place in God's presence you could add living in God's power so that's what Ezekiel's teaching is chapter 40 and 40 to 43 is about the future temple 44 to 46 is the rules of access to the temple and the the activity that goes on in the temple. 47 and 48 deals with the apportionment of the land to the people. And the idea of a cosmic world mountain that everybody is going to receive this from. I think I have this right here. There's a new tribal allotment. What do you notice in contrast to the arrangement of the tribes that you've seen previously? There's also a reorganization of them. You know, the 12 tribes come from Jacob's two wives and two concubines, right? The, the concubine children are at the bottom. The wives are at the top in this new layout. And you'll also notice that right in the middle here, where Jerusalem is, it says the portion of the prince. And so in this vision of Ezekiel, of the Jordan instead of east. There's no Levitical cities. We have a new beginning. And that is how Ezekiel. So, <laughs> any questions? So would you say the, um, the 
counting yep. back to something. Was that the holy video? Did I show you the holy video? I don't know if it was the holy video. I remember see they they drew God as like a man, old man with a beard. I remember that, but I don't remember. I don't think it was the holy video. I think it's called Holy or Holiness, and I think it actually focuses on Isaiah, or it uses that as a springboard. But then it goes back to this whole temple imagery thing. It has the the river of life coming out. And then in the video, the river of life expands, so it like covers the whole earth. And then, anyways, it connects in with Genesis and the prophets and, and Revelation. So, Bible Project people have some really good stuff. So, <laughs> but they got good Bible and theology skills, and obviously they got some good media and uh, whatnot skills too. Video and artistic and. Until after spring break, um, 